The scripture reading for today is from Isaiah 53, 6, which is page 523 in your pew Bible. And we'll also be reading Romans 3, 23 through 24, which is page 797. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have, has turned down to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. In your order of worship is uh, Brookwood Litany of Community, and I ask that you uh, take that and we will go through it here in just a moment, but let me offer one reminder. It's wonderful to have a reminder of community with our brother and sister from uh, Mongolia. Another reminder of community in a different way is that you have the chance to gather in community uh, this evening at six o'clock. We have a deacon ordination service, and that really is one of my favorite services of the year. It's quite uh, meaningful, especially for the people being ordained, but really it's just a great service, and it begins at six o'clock in here. would love for you to be here if you can uh, make it. And it's always wonderful to hear the testimonies of the newly ordained uh, deacons. Um, before we read the litany of community, I have a confession to make. We're all about being real this morning. That's our covenant this morning. And I noticed this morning a typo that is my doing. I'll come forward if I have to. If you look down, twice it says we covenant together to be reconcilers in the bold print where you're supposed to read. The second one should say we covenant to be rejoicers. So when we get down there, I'm actually going to read that one with you to make sure we get that one right with rejoicers, and I'll have that corrected next week. But that's just letting you know, I'm being real, letting you know I have a feet of clay like you. Uh, but I'd like for us to uh, join in this together. I think this is a good way for us to weave this, this understanding of who we are as community into our consciousness as we uh, progress through this series. So if you will stand with me and let us uh, join together and journey through this litany together. We are a community of covenant. Jesus prayed for those who will believe that they will be one. Paul tells us to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And so, by our love for God's word and our love for one another, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And so, by our love for God's word and our love for each other. After an Adam and Eve sinned, they were afraid, and they tried to hide from God. Jesus forgives and sets free those who are transparent in their brokenness. And so, by our love for God's word and our love for each other, Jesus wants us to bond with each other, but that is not enough. He wants us to build bridges beyond each other to those whom we do not know, those who are different from us, those who are equally a part of his kingdom, and so by our love for God's word and our love for each other. Before we offer ourselves in worship, Jesus tells us to resolve matters with those who have something against us. 
or those whom we hold something against. We must endeavor to make peace with those who wrong us or misunderstand us. And so, by our love for God's word and our love for each other, The Church of Pentecost lived together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Paul thanked God every time he thought of the church, and he was confident that the God who created that good thing called the church will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so by our love for God's word and our love for each other, we covenant together to be rejoicers. O God of community, of three in one, of the church as one, we covenant to be your people in genuine community. Honest with our world, there for our world, taking care of the world. Real people, real life, real love. Amen. You may be seated. We covenant together to be real. Manti Teo. Heisman runner-up. Football star at Notre Dame. Really one of the most beloved players ever to play for that institution. And yet this past week, I think, I heard many adjectives. I think the ad adjective I heard more than any other was bizarre. So unsettling, so awkward. We, we sort of got tired of hearing about it, and yet we didn't. We wanted some kind of resolution to all this. It, it was so dysfunctional that it eclipsed all the drama surrounding the Oprah interview with Lance Armstrong. Sad, dysfunctional, tragically flawed situation. And what about Lance himself? Once a great hero, seven-time winner of the greatest cycling event in the world. And supposedly innocent of doping. But we learned that that was not the case. Another sad case of dysfunction in the world. And it reminds us that there is a lot of that. There's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of damagedness among people out there in the world. But there's a lot of that in here as well, yes, even among us. And you even see it in this book. It'd be nice if we could escape to this book and read all these stories about heroic figures who were so functional, so healthy, so stable, not so flawed. And yet one of the most telling evidences that someone does not know much about this book is when they perceive this book to contain characters that are pious and stained glass personalities and just moral giants all the way through that's when i know they haven't really studied the word of god we can begin with where it begins with genesis let me just give you a snapshot of the stained glass characters that you find just in that one book i'll leave, i'll even give uh, adam and eve a pass we'll start with cain cain is jealous of his brother abel and kills him Lamech, the son of Cain, murders a man, then brags about it, and then he also introduces polygamy into the world. Noah, who is the most righteous man of his generation, gets drunk and curses his own grandson. 
Abraham shows favoritism between his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Those two brothers are estranged from each other for the rest of their lives. Isaac plays favorites between Jacob and Esau. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, argue between one another. They fight over which son deserves the blessing. And those brothers are bitter enemies for 20 years. Jacob plays favorites between Joseph and his 11 brothers. They want to kill Joseph, but instead they sell him into slavery. Now that's enough family drama right there. Plenty of dysfunction to go around. And let me say quickly, I left out a whole litany of CD, not even rated R. We're talking NC-17 accounts that you find in Genesis. You're aware of some of those. And this is just the first book in the Bible. Wouldn't it be nice if we could, you know, in a sense, treat these people not as real people, but as stories and as fictional characters in some kind of wider dramatic soap opera. But unfortunately, they are real people. Real people, real stories, just like ours. (laughs) Because you and I are every bit as dysfunctional and depraved and damaged and broken as they are. And we're every bit as vulnerable to that kind of flawed behavior. Every bit as vulnerable to that kind of behavior. When we say, there but for the grace of God go I, it is true. Even by saying that, you can kind of once remove yourself from a situation. But you are closer to it than you realize because you're damaged. Isaiah put it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. Not just some of us. Not most of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sometimes we'd rather not acknowledge this you know we can even nod our heads and we've we've seen that before and we see it in little gospel tracts and we hear it in a sunday school lesson but when it comes to really acknowledging our own personal dysfunction are are, are you willing to do so because sometimes through the centuries and even now the church has been guilty of really hiding behind pious platitudes and and easy answers It's a wonderful uh, account that Rebecca Pippert offers in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. And it was one day when she encountered two different groups within the course of just a few hours. But the two groups were just striking in contrast. She attended, first of all, a graduate class in psychology at Harvard University. And then right after that, she went to a Bible study right off of uh, the campus. And she said it was so interesting. First, she went to the psychology class. And she said the people in there were extremely open about their problems, their struggles, their failures. Yes, their dysfunctions. And they were very open about, you know, I am angry at this person. I am jealous of this person. I am struggling with this addiction. I don't know how to forgive this person. They were very open about the problems. But but their openness about their problems was matched only by their uncertainty as to what the answers were what to do, how to resolve this situation or this struggle that I'm having. And then she went to the Bible study at a campus adjacent to the Harvard campus, and and she walked in, and it amazed her because of the contrast, because in this group, no one was talking about their problems or their failures or their sins or their addictions or anything like that. Now, she said what was interesting was they all talked about a lot of uh, rather promises And answers that God gives, but that was it. When it came to addressing any problems, there was one person who said in general, hey, I have a friend who is struggling and needs prayer, and that was it. And she puts it this way. She said the first group, that is the psychology class, seemed to have all the problems and no answers. 
The second group, that is the Bible study, had all the answers and no problems. Have we ever been guilty of that? We, we, we know what the answers are. But how willing are we to be real and raw with one another and say, I'm struggling here. I'm in a heap. I'm directionless. I don't know where to go. I don't know where I need to go or to whom I need to turn. That, that, that's difficult for us to do. And, and we're so tempted to throw up this, this, this veneer of near perfection. This veneer of, of spiritual health that we really don't have. And yet that's the temptation. We want to look like we know all the answers and that we know how to fix everything and we know how to be you know, fixed ourselves and we've got it all together. In other words, we're wanting to really be perfectionistic. We're wanting to be perfect. But let's go back. Isn't it the case that a significant dimension of the original sin was the desire to be perfect? Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, which is why they ate the fruit. They wanted to be perfect. So often we in the church have a horrible theology of perfectionism, and we need to correct that with a healthy theology of failure and brokenness and being damaged. And if we don't have a healthy theology of failure, you know what? We fail. (laughs) Out of wanting to be perfect. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so we need to be real. Now, how do we, how do we get there? How do we do it? Well, we're honest. obviously, we got to be honest with who we are, broken as we are, and not gloss over our flawedness. Really, to do nothing less is to deny our desperate need for God and our desperate need for His grace. And in a sense, then we're dishonoring God by not being honest and real with ourselves and with one another. It's interesting with these two brief scripture readings, so often if you see it in a gospel tract or you hear it read in a a Bible study or a Sunday school class, it's so interesting because too often these, these verses are not read in their entirety or the sentences are not read in their entirety. And that's unfortunate because in the next breath is when the good news comes along. First of all, you go to Isaiah 53, verse 6. And it says, we like sheep have gone astray. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But in the very next breath, it says what? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, we are all astray. But thanks be to God by his work, his reconciling work on the cross, we are redeemed. We are set free in spite of our failures. Now, does that rid ourselves of all of our past flaws? Well, no. But we give them over to God who redeems us by forgiving us, setting us free from them. In the very next breath, you get that good news. Way too often we read Romans 3.23, but we leave it there. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, there's a comma that follows In the next breath it says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Again, the good news comes in the very next breath. And it's there for all of us. If you look at our worship destination this morning, it says what? It's a level place at the foot of the cross. And indeed it is. That's saying that Christ died for all of us. It's also saying, you know what? We're all on a level field. Nobody's better than the other. We are all equally wounded, broken sinners, equally in need of God's grace. 
And, and, and when we face up and, and be real about who we are, we can embrace the reality of our flawed ways and our spiritual failures and our hypocrisy. And in doing so, really minister more authentically to one another and be set free by God's grace. And we've got to learn to grant that grace to each other more freely and more openly and more immediately. Do you remember last week, I, I was real impressed with the first service. I don't want to put any pressure on you. But when I asked this question, there were a lot of people who knew the answer. I quoted Anne Lamott last week, who's a wonderful writer. And she said, a friend of mine recently said that there are three things I cannot change. Is it, is, can anybody, anybody remember? The past, the truth, and you. Okay, got the last one. <laughs> and that's the most important one in a lot of ways. And I think we need to resurrect that quote this week. Because that helps us to be more real about granting grace to ourselves and to one another. We cannot change the past. Even conflict we've had with someone else, we can't change the past, but we can redeem that past and be reconciled to that person and grant more grace to them. We can't change the truth, the truth of ways that we are so powerfully, powerfully broken and flawed. And yet, nevertheless, God's grace comes our way. But you know what? I can't change you and you can't change me. And because of that reality, that reminds us again, we've got to grant that grace to one another. That's where we start. And when we get to that place, we can celebrate together as a broken people. We can celebrate the fact that, you know what, we're, you know, can I just say, it? we're all a bunch of crazies. We're all crazy. How many of y'all remember the show Designing Women? Do you remember Designing Women from late 80s, early 90s? You had those four women who were uh, uh, interior designers, and they had an interior design business over in Atlanta, I think it was. And the matriarch of, of that little group was named Julia Sugarbaker. And I'll never forget uh, uh, one episode, and I finally found the script of it. And, and it's when there was a woman who came down from the north. And, and, and they were kind of starting to get into a little tiff because this woman, uh, Julia found out just through conversation, this woman was about to go to court uh, against a relative of hers because she thought that that relative was crazy and should be locked away, institutionalized somewhere. And Julia Sugarbaker, and she didn't even know who this relative was, this crazy person, but she, she kind of took up for this other person and said, you know, that might be a little too harsh, a little too severe. You know, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. And this northern woman was just indignant and said, how can you say that? How can you say that? What are you saying? And Julia said this. Julia Sugarbaker said, I'm saying, ma'am, this is the South, and we're proud of our crazy people. We don't hide them up in the attic. We bring them right down into the living room and show them off. So you see, ma'am, no one in the South ever asks if you have crazy people in your family. They just ask what side they're on. And, this, and the woman from the North said, oh, and which side are yours on, Miss, Miss Sugar Baker? And Julia said, both. And that's the truth. We're all crazy. We're all broken. We are all wayward on both sides of our families. And guess what? Going all the way back to our forefathers and foremothers in the book of Genesis, from that time forward, we are that flawed and crazy. And, and once we get that through our thick skulls, it's so good because we can gather together here in sanctuary. What a, what a rich word, in sanctuary. All of us crazies in the same living room. And showing off one another and loving one another and being there for one another and enjoying one another even amidst the brokenness and the craziness of one another. But the key is we've got to get rid of that veneer of spirituality and perfectionism and just, just shed that, masks, that mask. And that's, 
easier said than done. Uh, this week, Keith sent me something about masks, and it's, it's a little video, and I thought it's, it's well put. So I want to I let you have a chance to, uh, to watch this. Here's the funny thing about people. We all like to look good, to make a good impression, to show everyone else we have it all together. Even though none of us do, the only way to pull this off is to put something else on. And that something is called a mask. A mask can help you get a job. I have over 12 years of consumer electronics experience playing video games in my parents' basement. It can make you look smarter. Organizational energies to maximize corporation synergy. I have no idea what I'm saying. And more dateable. I can't believe you're single. And I can't believe it's... You're 25. I'm not single. I'm not 25. We use our mask to impress people. 65-inch LED TV. Oh, it was gorgeous. It was like only this thick. I mean, you know, it's expensive and all, but it is the best. So much debt. We use them to fool people. I thought I was going the speed limit, officer. We even use them to protect the feelings of the people we love. That was a beautiful song, sweetie. I'm pretty sure you're tone deaf. I think I'm just going to walk to school today. I'm kind of embarrassed to be seen with you. He sounds like a great guy. What are you thinking? You do not look fat in those jeans. So that's why they call it a muffin top. We all wear masks from time to time, but the craziest place we put them on is in church. Hello, brother. Amen. Greetings to you on this day that the Lord has made. Something about it makes us want to look our best. I'm fine. Sound our best. He hath blessedeth me so verily. And make like everything's perfect. Things are great. But behind every perfect mask is a perfectly messed up life. People with hearts that are empty, confused, addicted, hopeless, helpless, and hurting. People who think But here's the thing This is exactly the kind of life Where God shows up Messes are his specialty The one thing God can't work with Is a mask So around here we have a saying It's okay To not be okay Nobody's perfect But grace is available we believe God doesn't love us if or because. He loves us anyway. We all like to look good to others. We like to make a good impression. But when it comes to God, the best impression we could make is to just be you. If we could only get there. We're, we're fooling ourselves if we think that we are not in a very highly image conscious culture where we live come on very much so if only we can shed the masks and be true with who we are remember a moment ago i talked about how you know it talks about yes we are astray yes yes we've sinned yes we're very flawed but in the very next breath it talks about the grace of christ that came at a big price through his atoning work on the cross but that's so there it reminds me really i think the prodigal son is is a wonderful snapshot of that when the son comes along and authentically, in a very raw fashion, repents before his father, who's already rushed out to greet him and has embraced him already, and he confesses his sin, and the 
father immediately in the very next breath what forgives him showers him with grace what does he do do you remember he turns to the servants and says go clothe my son in grace get a robe for his back ring for his finger sandals for his feet and as i've told you before the servants in that parable are the church it's who we're supposed to be no matter what someone has been into, no matter what they've been addicted to, no matter how badly they have failed, no matter how miserably they have disappointed you, let you down, let a church down, whatever it might be, when they come in brokenness to you, to us, we immediately shower them with grace, clothe them in grace, create oasis for them. That's what we're called to do as the servants in that parable. That, that's that's who we are we, do, we don't judge we don't say master don't you realize what this person's into you know this young man's been cavorting with prostitutes and 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 has squandered your money and, he, and he's a worthless person he's been a person who has been faithless has a terrible reputation no the master the father just says no clothe him in grace and they just say yes and go no questions asked is it our place to even question that no, because we are equally as flawed and equally as vulnerable to any kind of sort, shortcoming or sin or failure or disappointment or betrayal that someone might have imposed upon us or a whole group of people. So I do think we need to keep that in mind. And what's wonderful is, you know, you, you in, in, in raw fashion, in authentic fashion, in real fashion, you confess your brokenness and immediately there's a party. <laughs> Kill the fatted calf and there's music and dancing and celebration. And it brought me back to this uh, little piece I read uh, one time a long time ago. It's from a wonderful book by Mike Iaconelli called Messy Spirituality. I love that title because that's what we're all about is messy spirituality. And it's a little piece called Dancing the Undanceable. And this happened at a college conference. And let me just read it. Lost in my thoughts, I was sitting in a hotel ballroom with 1,500 college students participating in a weekend faith conference. On the last day of the conference with school starting the following Monday, the students made it clear that they wanted to prolong the conference as long as possible. They wanted to party, to dance the afternoon away, to celebrate the Lord of the dance, to resist going back into the busyness and demands of college life. The morning general session turned into a spontaneous celebration. Young men and young women raised their hands, stood on chairs, shouted, cried, and laughed. And then suddenly a conga line broke out. Within seconds, hundreds of college students were weaving in and out of the room in a long, raucous line, praising their God. An older man with cerebral palsy sat in a motorized wheelchair watching everyone else party. He wasn't a college student. Technically, he wasn't even supposed to be at the conference. I was seated next to him watching the students celebrate when suddenly the wheelchair lunged in the direction of the celebration. The man's arms waved, his chair careened around the room with a jerky, captivating motion. His mouth struggled open and shut, making incomprehensible sounds. Somehow a man who couldn't dance had become a part of the graceful dancing of the crowd. Without warning, his motorized wheelchair lurched to the base of the stage, racing back and forth through a series of figure eights, twirls, and circles. He was laughing, lost in the joy of the Lord. His joy had taken a cold, ugly piece of motorized machinery and transformed it into an extension of his unconfined worship. He and his wheelchair became one, a dancing, living thing. This man with a crippled body found a way to dance the undanceable. And commenting on this, Iaconelli says this, I envy him. 
I want my crippled soul to escape the cold and sterile spirituality of a religion where only the perfect non-disabled get in. I'm going to read that one more time. I want my crippled soul to escape the cold and sterile spirituality of a religion where only the perfect non-disabled get in. I want to lurch forward to Jesus, where the unwelcome receive and the unqualified get qualified. I want to hear Jesus tell me when, uh, that I can dance when everyone else says that I can't. I want to hear Jesus walk over and whisper to this disabled, messy Christian, do you want to dance? Let's pray together. Thank you, O oh God, for inviting us into the dance, into the celebration. But remind us again that before we enter in, what we need to do is enter in fully and honestly and authentically, which means we enter in fully knowing who we are and how desperately we need you, and fully knowing, most of all, the sacrifice it took to be a part of the dance through the death of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he invites us to that dance. Lord, help us to learn to shed these masks behind which we hide trying to fool everybody we're, we're really not fooling you and we're not fooling ourselves and Lord that can be lonely and isolated there can be such a sense of removeness as we're hiding and, and, and staying in the shadows instead of letting people know this is where I am broken this is where I need help this is where I need love and support Lord help us to be that for one another like the servants in that wonderful parable help us not to ask questions but simply to serve and be there for one another. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we